Hello everyone, it's June 20th, 2023, so IROSA is complete. The ISS has three sets of new panels installed and is almost back up to its original levels of power generation, but one more future installation was added to the list. It's full power or bust for the ISS. Anyway, let's power up the show and lift off! And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 414 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. I learned some new uh, shuttle trivia. Which I think is pretty yeah. cool, and it actually the the one bit extends beyond just shuttle. So shuttle infamously had those like baskets and like you know emergency egress procedures and all that. But mm-hmm. did you know what they would do if they needed to like flee like the entire pad area, like all together? Oh, the buckets. The buckets could only take them so far. What if the buckets were even where that deposits? They need to be like miles away. Like they need to get oh. the heck out of there because there's a big flaming red cloud of death or something maybe coming after Thoughts them or prayer? something. <laughs> They had armored personnel carriers that they wow. were trained to drive and operate on their own. And that's Where how they, they would- Where were they stationed? I guess somewhere near near either, yeah, probably near the baskets. Uh, that's a good question. But these M113 APCs. <laughs> if you're getting into an armed personnel carrier, like things have gone so dramatically mm. wrong. You can't really have any complaints if you don't make it out at that point. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> being being trained to drive it, yes, that's a good thing. But like <laughs> at that point, if that's really what you need to survive, good God. Yeah. Might have been as uh, actually useful as the, uh, the uh, ejection seats on the early missions or having parachutes on your, you know, in yeah. your flight suit for the later missions. So yeah, <laughs> yeah things would have had to gone really south. Well, that's a cool bit of trivia. <laughs> yeah. And, then he, and and we still do that to this day though. Like, so they don't use the same APCs anymore. Now there's, cause there was four of them. Now they have four mine resistant ambush protection or MRAP vehicles or MRAP. I don't know if I've ever actually heard it said, but yeah, that's what, uh, I guess, the Axiom uh, and you know Crew Dragon people uh, have to use to escape, and those look like like more like a truck that's like very heavily armored up and all that. Yeah, they really do. Yeah, I'm looking at some pictures. They look kind of like tanks, but without the you know the cannon on the front. I mm. don't oh, know. They look like something that GI Joe would drive to me, or that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm wondering what the scenario is like when you would need something like that. Like you have to, so you still have to take. The ride down to ground level, right? Then you have to get out. Well, and then you have to get into the APC, right? And then you drive off. So you have like a certain mm-hmm. amount of time. Like, what's the scenario yeah. where you would need to be inside that, but you still have enough time to get away from? Exactly. Yes, exactly. Good question. Maybe so. So keep in mind, like especially for the MRAPs, this is for uh, right for Falcon Nine launches, crewed launches, and so these. They don't. They don't have the baskets anymore, do they? Uh, not since shuttle, I don't think. Yeah. So, so however they escape, I guess is one thing. But yeah, I don't know. I uh, my guess is that there, I could see one answer being it's just good to have something like for an unforeseen scenario. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe you manage to flee the vehicle and like <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna explode in like 60, <laughs> 60 seconds or something. You, know? <laughs> you got like a little countdown timer. Yeah. Yeah, like 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 the movies. Yeah. Um, yeah, like in a James Bond movie or something. Yeah. It's a good it's a good question. Oh, apparently, I guess uh, there still are slide wires. There's also bunkers that if you couldn't evacuate, but like maybe something happens where a flaming red cloud of gas that's like I don't know half a mile, but it's like downwind of <laughs> the winds are blowing uh, the 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 poisonous gases towards you or something or or maybe there's uh so much hydrogen has leaked around the pad and so while it hasn't exploded yet it could explode any moment so really get out of there fully out of there before it does i don't know yeah (laughs) it's the best i can 
invent. <laughs> it's just for all the scenarios that you can't account for. It's like a just-in-case <laughs> thing. Um, yeah, that's a cool fact. And then neat. Irosa campaign complete and looking to next campaign. All right, so uh, this round, I guess, is done uh, for this year. We have all the Iroses installed that we need. And over the course of a spacewalk, what was this, last, just a couple of days ago? Uh, yeah, three. Yeah, the 15th. So three days before uh, us recording on Sunday the 18th. I watched a little bit of it. And actually, one thing that's not really related, but I just wanted to mention is that I thought it was interesting that they're still doing uh, water checks. They do these every, you know, so oh, yeah. often. And they have to check each other's helmets for signs of water. I thought that was kind of, kind of interesting. They just kind of stare into, yeah, their partner's uh, helmet and see what they can see. Yeah. Until we until we move on to a totally different uh, technology. Yeah, we're always going to be doing this. But yeah, aside from that, what else is going on? Um, So they had a (laughs) successful spacewalk and they installed uh, those remaining iroses. Yeah, and the fact that there's a next campaign is pretty awesome because there wasn't going to be originally. This would have been just the end of all the iroses and they would have been happy with uh, six of them, but they bumped it up to eight. Yeah. So, so the idea um, to kind of big picture talk about this is that the, uh, the iroses, right? These are roll uh, ISS rollout solar arrays. They have a a greater uh, weight and power generation efficiency. And so they are going to be placed uh, essentially covering part of the uh, solar array wings or the, you know, the big solar panels you see whenever you look at station. And um, the, the way this all works is that uh, at the bases of the, uh, the saws, um, you've got these, uh, these main bus switching units that then, or rather, um, you have the power go to there, and then they're drawn over to the middle of the S0 truss where you have these main bus switching units, and they take that and basically distribute it into the station because the S0 truss right, is sitting on top of the habited, uh, habitable portion of the station, the U.S. orbital segment uh, side. And um, there's kind of an – it would get a little too – difficult to keep track, I think, especially over an audio format of all the different power channels. But since there's uh, eight saws, each of them has a different labeled power channel that runs, you know, 1A through 4A. So 1A, 2A, 3A, and 4A. And then similarly, 1B, 2B, 3B, and 4B. And without going too deep into the weeds, I think the easiest way to remember it is that the A power channels are on the in- inner four uh, solar arrays, and then the B panels or uh, power channels are on the outer four arrays. And then since there's two arrays, they're sticking out for you know in two different directions at each truss, uh, the S6 or the S4 or the P6 and the P4, um, is that the odd numbers are paired with the odd ones and the even with the even. So 1A is with 3A, 1B is with 3B, 2A is with 4A, and 2B is with 4B. And so on. Uh, basically, these saws were facing slow degradation over the years. One of them ripped at one point and needed an EVA, which is pretty awesome. But uh, uh, so the idea was to go and replace six of them with these iRoses, which is this great new technology. And uh, in one of the websites uh, doing the reporting, I saw that these were referenced as Boeing built. And that kind of raised hmm. my eyebrow. What do you mean by Boeing yeah. built? And so for any 30 Rock fans out there, I'm going to get into a little bit of a Shineheart wig uh, uh, digression yes. here. Yes, <laughs> so thank you. I didn't realize Boeing is the prime contractor for the ISS. 
So I guess when mm-hmm. something gets built or installed or whatnot on the ISS, Boeing is the company responsible. So Boeing goes and contracts out, I guess subcontracts out to Redwire, who owns a whole bunch of different companies, including their own subsidiary deployable space systems, who are the ones that really built the iRoses. And so that's how you can track that down, the different company things. So so uh, Boeing built, I mean, nominally, I guess, but you know, let's give the shout out to deployable space systems for this really awesome technology. And so, uh, but basically, uh, not only are you just getting some fresh uh, panels out there, um, or blankets, that's what they refer to the uh, the arrays of cells uh, that are all kind of uh, brought together. But uh, you also get a bump up in power, because even though these are much uh, smaller area, and they're blocking some of the original saws, uh, they still, again, with that higher efficiency, are able to boost the capacity of uh, the, the station to generate power over a day from uh, 160 kilowatts to 215 kilowatts. So I was wondering why they're going to install more panels. And I read, you know, that the original amount of power generated by the original solar panels was 240 kilowatts. And is it just that they're not back up to that full amount? Because, I mean, this is still pretty good. Mm. Um, and as you know, like, and as we know, the station's fine on 160. So why add even more? Like, why do the next mission or the next, you know, installation? Good question. I didn't see a, a direct answer to that, but I can guess that, or my guess would be that they've proven to be very successful and awesome. And if you can get some more power out of them uh, or, or get some more power to the station, that might be helpful because then you have, I guess, a buffer in case maybe one, there is some sort of catastrophe and you do end up losing a large number of panels or uh, one of the wings or something like that. Um, or you end up being like, hey, we want to run some Axiom when they you know, want to have mm-hmm. their little attach-on nucleated station. Maybe uh, they want to do a huge power draw as part of some experiment or something or adding all their modules and maybe having that buffer would be good for, for that. Or anything yeah, like that, I guess. I, I think that's a that's a really good instinct there, because like attracting people to send their payloads to ISS is not the easiest thing in the world, right? So like mm. if you can say, hey, we have a ton of power, like you can send an experiment up and like we don't need to strangle you on power. You can just basically do whatever you want and we don't need to keep track of you that closely. I think mm. that that could be a really huge draw mm-hmm. for some customers. But yeah, it's it's a good question because like ISS has a has an end of life planned now as like sad mm-hmm. as that is. Like there is an end. So yeah, why yeah. why do this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to know if we if we miss something because I, I think Dennis has really good guesses and that's as good of a guess as I could come up with. And I wonder if somebody listening could give us a little more insight. Well, I was wondering if maybe it had something to do with, you know, the way government contracts are done. (laughs) And so like, why not install more if, you know, why, you know, do one if you can do two for twice the price or whatever you're (laughs) saying is. Exactly. No, that, 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 that totally makes sense. And, and, and interestingly enough, if I've been reading the reporting correctly on this, they only announced that they're going to finish it out and put eight iros and get two more iroses so that every single solar array wing is going to be covered. I think they only announced it on the recent EVA, Spacewalk 88, just a few days ago. Mm-hmm. So it might just be that we're going to like see Space News report on it, you know, and you know, in the coming week, and you know, Boeing or NASA or somebody's going to be releasing statements explaining uh, exactly what 
whether it was politicking or yeah, what, what was the idea for going from six to eight and basically answering mm-hmm. this? And we'll, it'd be interesting to see how close we are. <laughs> so yeah, so so that's that that's the the idea for why they're being installed. And so what does the installation look like? Uh, well, each one is a pair of EVAs, um, and by each one I mean each individual. Uh, rollout solar array. So there's been six installed so far, and the other two will require four more EVAs. And for each uh, IROSA getting connected to a given power channel, uh, the first EVA is to install this mounting hardware, and uh, in particular, a mounting bracket that the IROSA is connected to. And so this is put at the base of the saw. And then the uh, second EVA is actually installing the array. And that's what these... uh, these two recent EVAs were, which were actually done within six days of each other uh, to install the the most recent two iRoses, were both installation type uh, EVAs. And so uh, the iRoses are brought up in the trunks of uh, cargo dragons. They look really cool, you know, being sitting in there. Two in at the, a time, right? Two at a time. Yeah. Like and they got an int- yeah, they got an interesting look because there's there's the two blankets end to end that then roll out. That's the whole beauty of the eye roses is that they're they're basically tensioned in the in a similar way to how uh, uh, measuring tape is tensioned. And so when you roll them out, they want to stay flat. And so, but while they're end to end when they're released at the middle where they're connected is a joint, and you can kind of fold them so that they become side by side. And so that's how you pack them. So since, like you say, Ben, yeah, two are brought two. I roses are brought up at a time, so you wind up with this like two by two block of four cylinders or four rolls uh, that are there, which is pretty cool. And and just just so that we don't get a correction, the the blankets themselves uh, aren't the structure; they're not acting like a like a tape measure. There are two struts that hold uh, like the end of the roll out, nice and stiff. So it's like you've got two tape measures uh, that want to be extended instead of wanting to be curled up. Um, and then you attach those to, you know, your uh, your throw blanket or or your sleeping bag or whatever. <laughs> and you use those to unroll your sleeping bag. Exactly. Yeah. Good, good, good point. So, so they're brought to station in the trunks of cargo dragons, and I guess they're they're grabbed and moved uh, to the uh, the mobile base system uh, on the station. And so that's uh, right that moves around that that part of uh, robots that moves around along the uh, the tracks along this, uh, the truss. And uh, the mobile base system is the base of that. And if you include Canadarm two and Dexter together, they call that the mobile servicing system. And so uh, they're chilling there. So you, this is a U.S. These are U.S. EVAs. And so you get out of Quest. You climb on up there. Uh, you grab a foot restraint for uh, doing some good Canada arming. And um, mm-hmm. and so uh, right, each person the kind of lead is EV one, and the uh, second crew member is EV two. And so EV two uh, goes and puts it on the Canada arm and is going to be basically getting pulled around on like on that for a while. And then they uh, install these uh, scoops, which are really handles, but that's the name of the handles. They call them scoops onto the eye roses so they can handle them manually. And so then they release them from their, uh, I guess, uh, canister or carrier, the eye rosa carrier. And then uh, their EV2 grabs them by the scoops, uh, gets carried by Canadarm2 to the work site, which uh, in the most recent case was uh, power channel 1A and power channel 1B. So those are not on the same, uh, you know, pair of saws. They, they kind of 
diagonal to each other. And so they had to go to different trusses to do that. But again, one at a time. And, uh, and then, yeah, they basically uh, install it on the mounting bracket, which is angled a little away from the saw, uh, the axis that the saw runs along. And so that's why when you look at the iRoses, they're kind of uh, sticking out and away from the uh, original solar panels by a, a pretty good angle. And so they got that interesting look to them. And yeah, and while there's all sorts of details, basically at that point, you know, you take the iRosa, you attach some cables to it, do a whole bunch of uh, bolting and unbolting, and then you unfurl it over six to ten minutes. And so these, uh, this is bringing into the original six that were planned. Um, Shane Kimbrough and Tom, Thomas Pesquet uh, installed them on uh, 2B and 4B back in 2001. And then late last year, Josh Cassidy and Frank Rubio, who... Uh, Kind of only recently, er, Frank Rubio is still on orbit uh, as part of uh, MS-22. He's part of the uh, the well. He's he flew with the Russians on uh, MS-22, and they installed it on 3A and 4A. And just recently, uh, Woody Hoberg and um, Steve Bowen, uh, who are Expedition 69 space uh, uh, astronauts, installed the iRoses on 1A and 1B. And uh, Basically, there was uh, some there was some shifting around of what it was going to end up looking like, and they kind of had this unpleasant, non-symmetric look, where they both looked like kind of you know a pair of like ninety-degree uh, brackets that are kind of pointing in the same direction. So they wouldn't have been uh, the the panels, the the saws that they were covering wasn't going to be symmetric. And I'm just glad now that they're going to go and cover all of them with these eye roses. So. <laughs> the station is just going to look prettier, yeah. I guess. Just to have that symmetry. Yeah. It was a little bit of like a missing tooth look, right? That's a good <laughs> yeah. way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, so Woody Hoberg and Steve Bowen, Woody, who is part of uh, the latest astronaut group, uh, 22, I believe. Uh, so he's, he's a rookie um, when he went and installed the first iRosa uh, just, you know, a week ago. But um, Bowen, Steve Bowen is not only a veteran, but he's like, I think he now is uh, third most spacewalking time of anybody and the second most of any uh, American astronaut. Uh, he's only behind uh, Michael Lopez Algria or Mike L.A. And uh, so, yeah, he's – and I mean, he, the fact that he's still active. And I was looking at what his previous spacewalks were and they included working on the, uh, the SARGES, the solar array rotating joints, as well as replacing batteries – uh, on the uh, the arrays, and so uh, I guess on the trusses holding the arrays, and so yeah, he, he definitely is kind of I guess an expert at solar um, arrays on the ISS. <laughs> so very good person to have do with your spacewalking. I've been listening to the space above us, and so this is like a very yeah. space above us kind of fact. So like this fact goes out to JP. <laughs> um, but so B Bowen was on STS one thirty three. He wasn't on the primary crew. He was actually on the backup crew, um, and he was called in uh, to replace Tim Copra. Uh, who wound up not being able to fly the mission. And <laughs> Tim, uh, this is good. Didn't, yeah, Tim didn't make it uh, because he was injured in a bicycle accident. And like after early human spaceflight being filled with people dying on airplanes and car crashes, um, being in a non fatal bicycling accident and not being able to make your your launch is like you know it sucks like it really sucks but also like mm. it's a relief that it's like oh they had to call in the backup crew why like is everybody okay yeah it was a bike accident <laughs> it is a sign of progress um yeah. yeah so as far as i guess now now we're in the present and so um 
you know, what makes this news news is that, uh, yeah, like I said, they did a pair of uh, EVAs where the last one, the second one was just a few days ago, and there was less than a week, only six days between them. So this was a quite a high cadence. And so uh, EVA 87 was the first, and this was going to install an iRosa on the 1A channel, uh, which is on the S4 truss. And so this was the one that we were, that was relevant to my Twisif, the last Twisif I gave. And so <laughs> uh, when I wanted to figure out which of the two spacewalks would be actually putting an iRosa on the S4 truss, it turns out it was the first of the two. And so, yeah, uh, Bowen was EV1 being the veteran and Woody Hoberg is EV2. This was his rookie spacewalk, so good job. And uh, Sultan al Nayedi, who is on board, was operating Canadarm too. Uh, and since, again, since Woody was EV2, he was the one getting uh, flown around uh, nicely on, on the end of a robotic arm, which is pretty incredible. And so, yeah, they basically uh, uh, did the installation like I referred to, and it went well. Uh, there was a bit of a hiccup, including you kind of – you don't even see them egress. Uh, if, if I was looking, you know, I kind of was scanning the EVA real quick, and I didn't see – them actually egress quest and translate over to where the iRosa canister was or, or carrier was uh, installed because uh, there were much longer signal dropouts than usual because Typhoon Mawar um, had hit Guam, which affected a relay station. Um, that was a problem. And so, yeah, this was a category four and then category five typhoon that was really, really big. Um, that was affecting, you know, the, a lot of nations on the Pacific Ocean, uh, the western part of the Pacific. And so, yeah, so that that was kind of a hiccup, I guess. But, um, you know, uh, after th a little over six hours, uh, they actually were uh, – it completed the uh, and uh, the installation and unfurling of the iRosa and uh, were able to do some get-ahead tasks for the next EVA, uh, 88. And so that one was actually uh, really quite short. And so, yeah, so that, that one just a few days ago, EVA 88, uh, Woody was now EV1 uh, in the driver's seat, which is pretty cool. Good for him. Given that, again, he's a uh, he's a new astronaut, part of the new class. And uh, uh, it's tragic for me to say I'm actually older than him, um, which oh, no. I kind of have been – I've been dreading when that was going to happen. And it's it's official. Oh, no. Not that Not that, you know, people have gone to space and done things when they were younger than me for sure, but like – like calendar year he was born after i was born <laughs> which yeah makes me sad but in any event that was installing uh, uh the irosa on the 1b power channel on the s6 truss and so now uh steve bowen was getting canadarmed around and so while everything basically went well but the uh the reporting referred to the irosa uh, unfolding successfully but doing so despite an anomaly that wasn't expected to affect power generation capability. And that's interesting to talk about, you know, an anomaly that isn't a big deal, but it's still happening. I wonder if you have to go to the actual uh, footage of the EVA and hear them talking about whatever they encountered during, I guess, the unfurling. Do they actually unfurl it during the EVA or do they wait until they're back inside? From what I understand, they unfurl it during the EVA because there's, I think there's even some bolting and uh, cabling and things they need to do after uh, it's extended. Yeah, that's a good question because that's something you could imagine them doing remotely. But then again, I mean, when they did the saws, they would, uh, I guess, keep an eye on them and kind of be floating at the base while they were while those were getting unfurled. So we do like to have meat bags uh, supervising uh, when we deploy solar rays on the station. So I, I wonder if if they just had to like re-roll it and unroll it again. <laughs> 
mm. and just like, uh, you know, kind of have got it look a little stuck. You just gotta like, like work through a little sticky point, and then it's that's fine. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, so I guess they they tighten they tighten it down once it's all unfurled. I guess to make sure that it doesn't refurl itself, mm. which makes sense. It looks like they use a pistol grip tool. They yeah. loosen a bolt or something, and then it just starts to slowly deploy. So yeah, it's done manually. That's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I th- they call them tensioners, and I suspect that they're basically, um, you know, clockwork. It's just springs that would mm-hmm. that are under tension when they fly them up, and then you loosen that bolt, and those tensioners unwind and push the thing out. So yeah, so uh, that second EVA, the final one, uh, as far as deploying these original six, was only f- about five and a half hours, which seems pretty quick for an EVA for me. But I guess that was the beauty of having those get ahead tasks. Uh, taken care of yeah. uh, previously. And so like uh, we said, there's these uh, final two that are going to round things out, but we got to wait until 2025 for them to make it to station. We got some time, <laughs> but that'll be cool until we get a fully uh, I rose it out International Space Station. Okay, so this week, let's do three short and sweet. Uh, one of them very short. And what is that short one, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so first up, ESA reserve astronaut to fly on an Axiom flight. Back in April, ESA and the Swedish National Space Agency secured a seat aboard a future Axiom crew mission to ISS. This week, they announced that astronaut reserve Marcus Watt will be the person flying in that seat. Next up, impulse to supply propulsion for commercial space station. Space habitation company VAST, known for their collaboration with SpaceX to put a commercial space station in LEO, recently announced that it had selected Impulse Space to provide propulsion for the station. The station, Haven 1, will use Impulse's Scythe thrusters, which were qualified earlier this year after tens of thousands of firings with a total of 65,000 seconds of operation. The station's propulsion will include RCS thrusters and a nitrous oxide slash ethane propellant combination. Haven 1 is currently on pace to be the world's first commercial station. And then next up, Rocket Lab goes suborbital. On June 17th, Rocket Lab launched a suborbital variant of Electron. This new variant of Electron called Haste, or the Hypersonic Accelerator Suborbital Test Electron, is capable of lifting 700 kilograms for suborbital tests and only requires minor modifications to the original version to construct. Haste launched from the Wallops spaceport in Virginia, carrying its payload to an unknown altitude just after sunset. There was no prior announcement or webcast of the launch as the payload was classified. So that's new, and I didn't know, well, obviously didn't know anything about that. And they did good, like, keeping that secret. (laughs) (laughs) That came out of nowhere, and that launched what I just said yesterday. So there was a suborbital electron launch carrying an unknown payload, and I guess the name Haste just, just refers to the electron vehicle. So this not yeah. isn't necessarily a hypersonic not- test, although maybe it is. I don't know. This is weird. Like, I yeah, no, I think I, I think, wonder what this. I is. think Rocket Lab was like, "Hey, uh, U.S. is falling so far behind in hypersonics. You know, I've got this small little rocket. We just got to do a little tweak here and a tweak there, and you can go and test all the hypersonic stuff you want uh, using our." Rocket is the platform. So you want to test something at Mach whatever, we'll fly you to Mach whatever, and then you turn on your payload. And so it's basically like a super sounding rocket, I guess. <laughs> yep. No, no, that's, I mean, that's exactly <laughs> the The payload is higher, right? 700 kilograms versus 300 kilograms because you're not having to go all the way to orbit. And like one of the, one of the things they changed was they had to make the structure a little stronger <laughs> so that it could survive going faster and pushing harder. 
pretty cool. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have four winners. We have the Greek, Uncle Willie, Cy Kyle, and Hydrak. The clue was Tunguska 2.0. And I think everyone got bonus points. They all got the event, uh, which was not yep. Tunguska, but something that was... And I looked this up about... Well, I don't know. Um, a lot less energetic. Um, so <laughs> not nearly as bad as Tunguska, maybe about 150th, but uh, still pretty pretty violent event somewhere in Russia. Mm. So what was that event? <laughs> All right. Uh, so th- this week in meteor impact history is the 26th of June, <laughs> 1971. It was the third test flight of N1. Um so N1 is is the the heretofore largest rocket ever attempted uh rocket launch ever attempted. Uh N1 was the giant Russian uh moon vehicle that um was like in competition with the Saturn V for being the vehicle to fly humans to the moon first. Um and it, it's so interesting because like we talk about the similarities and differences of shuttle and Buran and how like they look similar, but they're fundamentally very different vehicles and Saturn five and N one kind of serve the same purpose, uh, but they look dramatically different and they, you know, have very different uh, techniques at the core of not only the ascent vehicle, but the, the actual uh, strategy to, to get to the moon, right? Because, um, the Zond space, space mission, Zond campaign. Uh, but what the Russians were going to do was to do more of a Kerbal space program method where you fly out to the moon, you land on the moon, and then you return home in the vehicle that you landed on the moon surface with. Right. Um, and so they needed to have much bigger vehicles at each step. And so you wind up with uh, a much, much bigger ascent vehicle at the very beginning. It's the tyranny of the rocket equation. So if we, if we back up a little bit, 1969 is when they did the first, the first two test flights, the first two failed launches. So the first one uh, was on the 24th of February, 1969. Um, and this was serial number 3L uh, is the, the name of the rocket. And so on board, they had a Soyuz 7KL-1 Zond spacecraft, um, and there wasn't anybody on board, but the mission was going to fly it around the moon, sort of like an Apollo 8 uh, mission. Just after uh, liftoff, they, uh, they had this transient voltage in the cord engine controller computer, um, and the computer decides to shut down uh, engine 12. I, I had to work very hard to not stop and talk about this more. So in the future, hmm. we'll have to do uh, another comedy space failure segment uh, on, on this one because it, it's kind of a delightful failure. So uh, engine 12 goes down. So then cord also shuts down engine 24, trying to maintain symmetric thrust. And then ultimately this flight was killed because uh, of pogo oscillations, which caused um, propellant leaks like literally tore holes in propellant lines due to vibration. Uh, and then the propellant leaks lead to a fire. The fire causes uh, bad sensor data that tells cord that, Hey, you need to shut down the entire first stage. And also there's no hope of the upper stages being successful. So cord also propagated uh, a command upward and said, Hey, lock yourself down. Don't ignite. Uh, so even though the ground was saying, Hey, go ahead and ignite, <laughs> they couldn't. Uh, mm. and so, uh, three L, 
uh, smashed into the ground 52 kilometers downrange. Shortly after that, on the 3rd of July, 1969, they flew serial number 5L. This had another uh, Zon spacecraft on board. Um, and in this <laughs> in this launch, uh, one of the turbo pumps exploded shortly after liftoff, which started a fire. All of the engines shut off uh, except for one of them. And the problem is that the asymmetric thrust caused the vehicle to like impact the pad at like a 45 degree angle, um, which I believe contributed to uh, the fuel mixing and causing a bigger detonation. Um, the, the blast was so big that it sent debris flying a good 10 kilometers away. Uh, it broke windows in the, in the launch center. Um, and they waited like 30 minutes for things to kind of die down before the first people went out to go observe the damage. And when they got out there, there was still unburned fuel droplets raining down out of the sky. Mm. Um, the official reason for the failure was that there was debris in the propellant lines. Um, but the investigation board was certainly influenced by internal politics. Um, the propulsion uh, contractor was very grumpy about ever being blamed uh, about their engines failing, which, you know, you can't really blame them because like everything kind of hinges on this one thing working. And if somebody says that you're the one who caused the issue, like you kind of fall out of favor in the upper class and you lose the ability to ever get a, a incredibly wealthy job ever again. <laughs> so you kind of understand mm. um, why they really don't want to get down to the actual problem. So it's, it's not clear if debris in the propellant lines is the, the actual root cause here, but uh, it's, you know, as good a root cause as any, I suppose. Well, so that, that was on the 3rd of July, 1969. If memory uh, brings up, uh, another important date uh, nearby, that would be uh, the 20th of July, 1969, when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. That's just 17 days after this launch failure, uh, which really takes the wind out of the sails of the Russian space program. Uh, but more importantly, <laughs> uh, this huge explosion happened right on top of their launch pad and just completely destroyed it. I mean, it was just, it, it was a mess. So you know, they needed time to rebuild the launch pad. Uh, they had a little less wind in their sails to actually do it. And so we, we jump forward in time from, uh, July, 1969 to June of 1971, the 26th of June. And now on the pad is serial number six L on board, um, was not another Zond spacecraft. Now it's, uh, they've been upgraded to Soyuz 7K LOK. Um, and then they also had what I believe is a mock-up of the LK lunar lander. Um, I saw a couple of different references and so I'm not exactly clear how, um, high fidelity this mock-up was, but you know, it's something there anyway, a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of repair work was on the pad in this uh, in this time obviously but also a lot of work was done on the n1 vehicle itself um, changing the design and trying to fix some of the issues encountered previously um, so one of the things is they installed uh, asbestos fire blankets 
and a lot of fire blankets, just fire blankets everywhere. Also, they install propellant filters or, you know, filters in the propellant lines, uh, hoping that that was actually the issue. Um, and then if the fire blankets aren't enough, they also installed uh, fire extinguishers filled with freon and nitrogen uh, and just kind of put them all over the vehicle. And just in case the, the, uh, fire retardant solutions don't work. They also moved all the instruments and computers that they possibly could, and they moved them as far away from the engines as they could. And then they wrapped them in fire blankets. And like, what really sucks is that the big thing that they didn't update was the engines. This was very well, when N1 started, it was very early spaceflight. By 1971, it's not quite so early human spaceflight. But at this point, they have these uh, single-use engines. Um, today, we're very used to the idea of building an engine, testing it on a uh, on a test stand, and then installing it in the vehicle. But you know, when we started building rocket engines, we couldn't rely on them uh, to even be reused once after a test fire, um, and so that was the the case here so all the all the engines that had flown on n1 up to this point uh it was it was the first time they'd ever lit those particular engines up well after wow. uh, uh 6l which is this launch and then 7l the planned following launch the intention was to switch to engines that were uh, a little better and could actually um, be tested uh on a test stand and then get put on the vehicle and they they just hadn't made it high enough of a priority i suppose and it would have required replacing all of the engines on 6l i don't think that 7l had its engines uh installed at this point but 6l's engines were actually delivered way back in january of 1969 uh, at the same time that serial number 5l's were installed were delivered so you know it kind of makes sense to just go okay well we've got this rocket let's just go ahead and fly it with these and then we'll upgrade it later what's odd is that russianspaceweb.com mentions that uh vasily mishin considered uh, he was the president of the company that was the prime contractor on the propulsion system. Uh, he considered actually pulling all of the engines off of 6L and testing each one, if not to destruction, uh, but to as close to destruction as possible. And I don't think the intention was to test them and then put them back on. I think it was to test them and prove, look, it's not our engines. So uh, let's let's actually get uh, serial number 6L off the pad. <laughs> as soon as this vehicle starts lifting off the pad, it starts to roll clockwise if you're looking from the engines to the top. And we're still not 100% sure why it started rolling. Um, but the idea is that airflow below the first stage uh, was responsible. So th this isn't like combustion instability inside the engines. This is like atmospheric uh, movement of atmospheric air under the first stage. Um, and so the thought is that um, just the sheer volume of engine exhaust that this thing is putting out is kind of like excited into turbulent flow. Um, and like that is pretty okay but it, it seems like there's like this very this very narrow, restriction on 
where this airflow can go. And if it goes too far out of this narrow safe range, um, some of the um, like asymmetric components on the aft bulkhead where all the engines are mounted can kind of excite it into this swirling airflow, um, which is, is kind of odd. And the idea is that the reason this didn't happen on either the previous flights is because they both had engines shut down. And so it wasn't until they had all 30 engines going that it was strong enough to, to actually notice. But anyway, the Russian space agency says that they were able to confirm this theory using computer modeling. Um, and then the, later on, they were able to confirm it again using a, a one to 50 scale model um, in like a very fancy wind tunnel that's able to like simulate some of the temperatures that were happening, not by actually heating the air up, but I guess pressurizing it and and getting some of the same uh, aerodynamic weirdness happening, I, I guess. But anyway, it, we get kind of this this big old swirl and it was it was pushing the vehicle so hard in this roll direction. Yeah. Call in the chat says fire tornado, really terrifying. It, it was pushing the vehicle so hard that they were having to roll as hard as they could the opposite direction. What's really interesting about N1 is that it didn't have any gimbaled engines. Um, instead, uh, the outer ring is, is 24 engines and they're split into eight groups of three engines. And each of those three engines um, is throttled differentially to uh, obtain uh, six axis or I guess three axis control on the vehicle. So one of them uh, is canted a little bit clockwise and then the one in the middle uh can be throttled up and down to provide pitch and yaw uh authority and then the third one is canted a little bit counterclockwise so by throttling each of these up and down um in combination across all these eight groups you can understand how you would wind up um, being able to point and control your rocket well so so there's so much role that they had to actually max out their roll authority. So that means that all eight of the engines that were uh, pointed uh, counterclockwise were at full throttle and all four that were pointed clockwise were at the minimum throttle and it still wasn't enough to, uh, to get the vehicle under control. So this was happening fast enough. Like this, this roll was extreme enough that at T plus 14 and a half seconds, the vehicle had rotated uh, about 145 degrees. It's hard to like perfectly narrow it in. Might've been a little more, might've been a little less, but like, it's like, this thing is like really starting to spin around, right? By T plus 39 seconds, it had rolled so much that the gyroscopes on board had locked out. They couldn't record any more uh, roll. Um, real quick, I want to point out that they didn't see this on the first two flights because of the engines that were out early in the flight. And it kind of made me feel a little worried. We don't want Starship to be an echo of N1. I don't think it is. Like in reality, I don't think it is. But like for a second, I had kind of a skin crawly moment where I was like, well, wait, Starship broke N1's thrust record. And Starship also had engines out. And so like we wouldn't know if the same thing was happening. I, and I really don't actually think that's the case but have any of you seen the tim dodd video he basically has a comparing starship to n1 like his most recent one i think oh i oh, haven't watched cool. that one yet <laughs> yeah i've been, <laughs> I've, been cool. meaning, I've been meaning to but yeah i haven't gotten to it either so i was just curious okay so all that to say that 6l was uncontrollable 
quite early in the flight. But unlike the previous two flights, the first stage engines weren't shut down and the flight terminated uh, when the vehicle realized that it was uncontrollable. And the reason for that is that they implemented a new uh, lockout rule that basically said that the flight <laughs> the flight computer wasn't allowed to shut down those engines um, until T plus 50 seconds into the flight. And so this crazy like bucking Bronco of a vehicle uh, like ascended into the night sky. <laughs> I saw a description that said that it flexed like a willow tree in the wind as it's going up. And uh, it got up to about 500 meters. That's uh 1,640 feet. And just like a tenth of a second after the lockout ends, the first stage engines are all shut down and the vehicle comes falling back down to earth. Um, Debris was scattered over this large swath of land. They found chunks of the rocket uh, three to 15 kilometers downrange, just like this big area. Um, and luckily this time there was no major damage to the launch facility, but when the vehicle did hit the ground, actually, I'm not sure it, the launch was visible from Salute one, um, which was, uh, uh, crewed at this time. And I'm not sure if they were able to see the the launch or if they were able to see the explosion afterwards. I don't, I don't know, you know, if it's T plus 50 seconds and then call it another, like <laughs> another minute to hit the ground. That's, that's too long for one visual pass. Uh, so, so they must've just seen part of it. I don't know what, what they would have seen, but they saw this from, from orbit, um, which is kind of a, I mean, it's, it's a night launch. So like, it's not that crazy, but also like, it kind of tells you how huge this vehicle was. So the, the clue this week was, um, Tunguska 2.0. Yeah. Good clue you guys. And so the, the reason that David and Dennis picked this clue is because if, if the lockout hadn't have been in place, uh, the vehicle would have crashed pretty close to the pad. I saw one kilometer quoted and it would have had a lot of propellant on board. And the estimate that I saw was 500 tons of TNT. Um, but instead, um, the bulk of, you know, all this propellant and the tanks and everything, um, landed, uh, you know, 15, 20 kilometers away. And when it did, uh, it still exploded, um, not quite as bad. Um, nobody was hurt as far as I know. Um, but it still definitely exploded and it, uh, dug a crater 15 meters deep <laughs> out of the ground. And Tunguska is, uh, a famous Russian, uh, meteor, which, I mean, it is really fantastic. If you go look at the, the impact damage it's really bizarre. Like it looks like something out of like a Spielberg movie. Um, mm -hmm. all of the trees, are blasted radially outward from the center of the explosion. And it, it looks like an alien, like alien interference on earth or, you know, yeah. a crop circle or something. It's really, it, it's so symmetric and geometric that it feels wrong somehow, but it's, uh, I, I think Tunguska is, is a really lovely natural phenomenon. I mean, it, it happened, uh, recently enough that, you know, we have photos and, and like modern, written records on it when it when did that happen in in like the the early 20s 20s or 30s 
Early I, I think it was 1908 or 1909. Okay. It was 1908, I think. Oh, yeah. 1908. So I, I like that clue. Uh, so, so that's all that I had for the third test flight of N1. Uh, I want to point out that this wasn't the final launch attempt uh, for N1. Uh, they did one more launch attempt after this one, and they actually canceled um, a fifth launch attempt. And like, what what a rocket. Like, it, it sucks that, you know, it had so many issues and probably was was rushed due to the space race. And, you know, if all these engineers had been a little more relaxed and hadn't had so much pressure put on them, yeah, probably this would have been a successful strategy. Maybe not the most efficient, maybe not, you know, better than the alternative, but like, it, I, I think this would have worked eventually. We, they would have been able to put people on the moon through a, a different program than Apollo. And like, giant rockets are cool, you know, like, <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to not like giant rockets. But there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. And just out of curiosity, I looked up how many tons of TNT Tunguska was, it was still quite a bit bigger. So it was about oh, yeah. 20 times more on the low end, obviously. I mean, yeah. yeah, we knew that that would be a lot. So yeah, that's a fun event. Uh, let's see about next week. Um, the uh, date range for next week's clue is the 27th of June through the 3rd of July. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 2001... Did you guys hear something in the background? All right. Uh, so there's your clue. So if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF or let us know on our Discord as well or drop us an email uh, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. We got five events, four launches, one spacewalk. <laughs> What's our first launch? Our first launch is a Delta IV Heavy. Um, and didn't you check how many of these we have left? This would be the, I think, the second to last. Second to last. Okay. So we've got the yeah, the penultimate Delta IV Heavy. Um, yeah, the weather, it looks like, caused it to slip from uh, last week uh, when we mentioned it was coming up. And so, again, this is taking uh, NROL 68, uh, classified payload for National Reconnaissance Office. They always have neat mission patches. This one has a little dragon uh, popping out of an egg uh, with the name, with uh, the words uh, Nusquam Salare or Kelare. Uh, underneath it. I don't know what that means in Latin. Oh, nowhere to hide. Yeah, ominous as ever. And all good job. <laughs> so Co Colin in the chat nailed the translation before I could even get into Google Translate. So nowhere to hide. Thank you, Colin. So nowhere to hide. So uh, you can read into what type of payload this will be. And uh, in any event, uh, that is now scheduled for Wednesday, June 21st, with a window from 0700 UTC to 1145 UTC flying out of Slick 37B at the Cape. And then after that, the next day on the 22nd, we have another Falcon 9 Block 5 with a Starlink group. Uh, this one is 5-7. So, uh, yep, just another Starlink. This one's launching from Vandenberg. Uh, the liftoff time uh, is 0536 UTC from Space Launch Complex 4E. So, yep, check that out if you're into Starlinks. <laughs> then on... Uh, June 22nd as well. Uh, this is going to be on NASA TV. It is Russian uh, EVA 59. Um, so on this uh, EVA, they're going to be installing uh, some custom-made meteoroid protection shields on ROSVET. Um, they're going to be removing the portable worksite from ROSVET and moving it over to NAUCA. Um, they'll be plugging in some cables to the SHK airlock. Which airlock is that? That is the teeny tiny experiment one that was sitting on ROSVET 
as well for like an eternity along with the radiator and so they yeah the last few evas they grabbed the radiator and brought it over and they grabbed the airlock and brought it over then they'll be removing a protective cover uh from nauka for uh their next spacewalk so i'm assuming that's like pulling up the protective cover out of out of storage or something um and then they're also going to be removing uh, Emmy from the outside of Nauka. So that's the external man-machine interface. It's basically the uh, push-button control panel for the European robotic arm. Uh, that's that's coming off of Nauka. So all of that's going to be happening on ISS, and NASA TV is going to be streaming their coverage of it. The coverage begins at 9.45 a.m. on Thursday, June 22nd. Um, the spacewalk is scheduled to actually begin at 10.20 a.m. Eastern Time and is predicted to last about seven hours. And then we have a uh, interesting return uh, and a very bold prediction coming from this company. Uh, this is Virgin Galactic's Spaceship Two, um, and so they've got a window. Uh, it sounds, it looks like, from uh, June twenty seventh to the thirtieth uh, to fly their Galactic Zero One mission. And so this is the research mission for the Italian Air Force. That would be their first commercial mission from Virgin Galactic, and it's a uh, right suborbital, uh, air launched, uh, horizontally launched, uh, you know, profile. And yeah, they, they fly out of Spaceport America. And uh, Ben, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but they also have made the claim that uh, with this launch, they will then proceed to do uh, monthly launches with this vehicle. Uh, no, they're skipping July. Uh, they're so they're skipping have, July. Yeah, so they're going to have flight <laughs> o uh, Galactic O2 in August. And then their website says, and monthly commercial missions after that. So get ready, that's, everybody. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's what they needed July for, to be able to ramp themselves up to uh, monthly <laughs> missions. You know, that's <laughs> piece of cake. Um, so, yeah. Yep. So good luck with that mission. Stay within the flight envelope. Um, and then after that, on the 27th, we have Meteor M number 2-3. So this is um, a Soyuz 2.1B with a Frigate M upper stage. So uh, this is launching a Russian meteorological satellite or a couple of them to replace the Meteor 3M series and a what looks like a low-resolution multispectral scanner, an imager slash sounder for atmospheric temperature and humidity profiles. So a Weather whole shit. lot of stuff they're launching yeah weather <laughs> stuff so this uh this launch is happening like i said on the 27th at 1134 utc from vostochny cosmodrome from cosmodrome site 1s and you won't be able to watch it probably <laughs> all right those are your upcoming space flight events so with that it's time to do the show and we would like to thank ronald jenkins and tim dodd for our music we record live on sundays at 9 a.m pacific 12 p.m eastern thank you so much to colin astro and the greek for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly if you want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.